The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. It was two years ago, almost to the day, that Lorraine Dempsey's husband, Carl, tragically passed away during an adventure race on the Malmturk Mountain. Life, as it tends to, has continued. Children have started university, anniversaries have been marked and there have been highs and lows along the way. But today, Lorraine is with me in studio to share her personal journey of grief, the challenges of lone parenting and finding support in unexpected places. Lorraine, good morning and welcome. Um, 9-11, of course, we talked about it uh, on the anniversary on Monday, but the 11th of September is a completely different thing for you now. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose, you know, it was always a, a day of global significance, but, um, you know, I can't get past that personal significance of the date. Um, you know, as you said, it's the second anniversary, uh, which which kind of, you know, felt very different to marking the first and the first year of marking the first, the first birthdays, the first days of school, the first things that you would do, you know, of a year, the calendar and the scheduling. Um, but you were doing it alone. So coming into now the second of everything, it kind of feels really different. Um, and I suppose I'm kind of, you know, in a better place to talk about that emotionally than I would have been kind of maybe the first year after Carl passed away. He passed away suddenly in the middle of something that he was really enjoying doing. Yeah, like it was just, I suppose, incredible circumstances insofar as he left on a Friday full of the joys of spring. He had been training for this adventure race for most of the year and it was originally was supposed to be on in June because that was kind of the the date every year and with COVID and everything and the restrictions they cancelled it and they they just pushed it out to September so he just left on Friday morning I was in the middle of an online meeting and I remember he just came up behind me gave me a kiss and I blushed and brushed him away with embarrassment and and that was it that was the last time you know the last goodbye and what I didn't expect was the following day to get a phone call to say that look, there was a medical emergency on the mountain and they mentioned it was a, a cardiac event and a helicopter on the way, but that's all that they knew for now, but that there was support there. And um, about 20 minutes later, uh, one of his friends um, who was racing with him and they were sharing um, a house uh, for the weekend. Um, well, like once I heard his voice and it wasn't his number, it was the race organizer was number. But once I heard his voice, I, I actually just I, I suppose it was the most painful experience ever. I actually asked him not to say anything because I knew what he was going to say uh, was just going to be that life changing. And I remember, you know, falling to the floor and I think I was screaming like an animal Um, and just this massive, like all encompassing pain. Um, And I think all my grief fell into that moment. And thereafter, I kind of picked myself up and just became this strong woman for everybody. And it just all came out in that instance. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, it's something you just never expect. Mm. Um, you and Carla, four girls. Yeah, so we have four girls and the oldest are twins and they were turning 18 the week after and we had plans for, you know, the 18th birthday bash in a hotel and the next time around the hotel was actually to ask them to do kind of a meal for the family after the funeral and cancel the 18th birthday. Um, so I'd at the time, my twins were turning 18 and then I had uh, 14 and uh, a six year old and, and they're all two years older now. So the twins birthday is actually coming up next Friday and they'll be 20. Um, and, you know, look, it's just not 
what you expect. Um, you know, he was really fit, really healthy. He was in the peak of fitness because I suppose the one thing that the whole pandemic did bring for us was an opportunity for him to work from home and to yeah. spend more time at home. And for my youngest, who was six at the time, it was the greatest gift for her because she had her dad for about a year and a half, you know, exclusively in the house. There was no international travel. Um, you know, he'd run up the Sugarloaf, which is our local mountain at lunchtime. Um, and then he'd head down to the garage for a, a big roll. Um, and in the evening, he might do 50k cycling, go for a walk with the dog mountain biking, you know, our two kilometres was in mountain paradise and he mm. used every minute of it you, to get out there. You're painting also a terrifying picture of someone in what appears to be fantastic health. Yeah, and I suppose we had no idea what happened other than it was a cardiac event. So it was only six months later when we got the post-mortem results that we discovered that he actually had moder moder sorry medium level of coronary artery disease. Um, and this isn't something that would just happen over a short number of years. Mm. This could have been developing in his early adulthood. Um, we also discovered that he had a heart attack the previous week um, and in hindsight, there was a day where he felt he had pulled a muscle in his chest with training. Yeah. And, you know, I remember saying, oh, there's the paracetamol and he just took it easy for the day. But that actually was more than likely a heart attack. He just didn't feel that there was anything wrong other than a muscle strain in his chest. It wasn't what you kind of see in the movies or anything like that. It was just a niggling pain that he put down to kind of the level of training that he was I, at. I know the the what ifs must have gone through your, your head. What if he yeah. hadn't done this? What if he hadn't done that? But maybe this was a time bomb anyway. It was. And I think, look, for me, that's something that's actually helped me to process all of this. So, yes, there was, you know, several months of what ifs. And I talked to his GP and his own family, um, talked to Cree and, you know, they had cardiac screening um, just to check themselves out. But look, it turns out that this was just something that was there all the time. He, he didn't meet the risk factors, you know, bar age kind of creeping into his late 40s. You know, he was fit. He had a, a reasonably good diet. But as I said, he might run up the sugar loaf, but he'd go down to the petrol station for a big fat roll um, and he liked his beer. But um, the one thing that he didn't do, Pat, was ever go and see a GP. So uh, for, for various kind of practical reasons, we had to kind of source his, his medical records. And um, I went right back to childhood. So he, so you know, th he was never sick, even as a child. His mum had very little recollection of bringing her to the GP other than kind of child development checks. Um, so the only time that I recollect him going to the GP was back in like 1998, where he had an ear infection and we were living and in that's London. It. That's it. And I think I did ask my GP, what if he came maybe, you know, look every year or two, just go, hi, I just want to check up, you know, check my cholesterol, check my blood pressure. And, you know, maybe at that point, you know, there might have been some kind of screening. And, you know, my GP was kind of saying, well, given that he'd no risk factors, he may not have sent him on for anything more like sure. more invasive. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, it was there all the time. His body was lying to him. He thought he was like in peak fitness and his race times up until the time that he started to slow down were incredible, Pat. He was up the top. He knew who he wanted yeah. to beat this yeah. that year. And, and I suppose psychologically, maybe he was so 
into the race that maybe he didn't listen to his body properly. We do know. But also, all you put yourself through incredible huge, agonies yeah. when you're yeah. training anyway. Yeah. So if your body complains a bit, you just think that's yeah, because look, I'm training hard. The first time he did this race, Gale Force, this was, uh, it was his ninth time doing it. But the first time he did it, he vomited halfway around the course. It's, it's a huge, it's a 70 kilometre race. So we do know from people who are racing along, we've managed to piece every single minute bar his last for the whole two and a half hours that he was racing. So we do know that he was complaining really early on of indigestion, but he thought he'd, uh, you know, that it was just a banana that he'd eaten and it was repeating on him. And the whole way along, he was complaining about that. He couldn't shake it off, but there wasn't anything else he was going on about. He was pushing, he was breaking his personal best times. And then the very last part of the race is a seven kilometre run up and over a mountain, Bacon, which overlooks Killary Harbour. And it's it's spectacular. Um, vista there and just as he was about 20 metres from the top um, he sat down and one of his colleagues from work actually was the last person to speak to him and he just told him look you know keep going I'll catch up with you in a minute and um, as far as we know he did get up again and then must have just needed to sit and and then that was and it. Had the, yeah. the event and they got yeah. help to him as quickly as really possible. Really quickly yeah so I suppose look um, a lot of the, the people who do these kind of races tend to have like first aid um, or they're involved in kind of healthcare and you know they're just very fit people and the first person to come upon it was a couple and one was actually uh, a COVID physio specialist, um, Elaine Hall. I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her name but we're still in touch. Uh, she's had a baby since then and everything and I've met her. Um, so herself and her husband straight away started CPR and then seconds later there was a group of um, uh, three men who started, they were cousins and a friend and again they, some of them were healthcare staff um, and one had just done a first aid, advanced first aid refresher so the people who knew what they were doing in that context were there working away and they went, uh, the so officials got a defibrillator, but it was you too, know, late. too, too late. late. But so they worked on him for 45 minutes, Pat, which is just an incredible testament to the people that were there. But I have to say there was also one man who was described at the time as just being older than them all. They didn't know his name. He disappeared after. But I did find him last year at the race and, and I did meet him and speak to his family, um, Patrick and he lives in the UK but all he did was hold Carl's hand and hold his head and speak to him for the whole time the people were doing CPR and just talk to him to say that they were there and um, and I think that humanity in amongst all the kind of medical intervention for me as as his wife was really special to know that somebody he knew that that was alone. important. He did yeah. not die alone. Um, have you been to the area where he died? Yeah, so last year um, in the June of last year was the first time Gale Force West was run again so I felt it was important to be there. Carl had a lot of um, friends and his brother decided he wanted to do the race in his memory um, Carl's colleagues from Salesforce there was always a big group of them did it every year with them so they were there and his mum and dad came down and, and kind of friends to support them so there was quite a large group uh, who came down for the race um, and I felt it was um, important just to be there for the other participants as well. So I was actually asked by organisers if I wanted to that morning at 7am speak to the participants just before the starting. So I got to speak to all the elite athletes who were there, who many of them were there with Carl Racing the year before. And that's how we pieced every minute together because they graciously took the time to come yeah. up and say, I was running with him at this point. 
I was there when he sat down, but he wasn't found there. You know, so we put it all together. Um, even the person who parked next to him in the car, reflecting on his kind of big moustache that he had at the time and saying how fit he looked. And they were so intimidated by him. Um, so I did get to speak to them. And what I felt was important for them to know was take the mystery away from what happened. It wasn't a sudden adult death syndrome, you know, that he had this secret that he didn't yeah. know about in his heart. And I did kind of urge them if, if they thought they were felt, they go get yeah. checked out. Yeah. You know, if it saved one life out of the 200 there for me, you know, that that's a, a bonus. You describe the moment when you get the phone call and then there's that gap until your worst fears are confirmed. What was that 20 minute period like? I think, look, my background was nursing. So I, you know, I knew this was extreme. Um, I didn't want to think that it was fatal, but, you know, part of me was being realistic. So I just started ringing family, um, ringing kind of friends who I'd need for the kids. My first instinct was I'm going to need to go across. Um, I thought that he was on Crow Patrick um, and indeed the, the kind of post I put up that's out there announcing that he would passed away talks about Crow Patrick. Um, but the race had been diverted to uh, another mountain, Bacon. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of saw the Mam Turks being mentioned and I was like, no, no, it's, it, that's totally wrong. It's not even in that county. But um, as it turns out, um, he was a, a good few miles south. Um, I just, you know. So, I, so you I, went into kind of a, an automatic response oh, mode as a professional nurse. management yeah. mode. It was get, you know, notify his parents, notify his brother, you know, track down everybody. Obviously, you weren't going to tell them um, that he died. But by the time they were on the road, I had got that second phone call. So at that point, I was still sitting there on the floor in my utility because that's where all these phone calls happened, um, wondering, you know, how was I going to tell them? And, you know, the first person to got, get to the house was his brother. And, you know, look, he just took one look and uh, and knew what and I then needed te- to say. telling the children. Yeah, so the children, my my oldest, one of the twins, um, well, actually both the twins were in the house at the time. One has cerebral palsy, so she was just watching television. But her her twin was there and look, she she heard the this animalistic screaming. I couldn't even tell her what it was about. Um, you know, I just said, you're, you know, that her dad was sick. She knew that something was up, but um, I my six year old was there and I was just gesturing to get her out of the way, get her out of the house. Um, but telling them, I suppose, what can you do, you know, um, other than say your dad is dead, mm. you can't pussyfoot around it in language. There's some people who I didn't have to actually say it because they saw it. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's just, it's very surreal thinking about, you know, trying to get that word out. And it got to the point where I knew that the only way, you know, beyond family and very close friends then was just to put something out yeah. myself before people started sharing it and I knew it was on the news and I just didn't want his name to come out before we got the opportunity to You've to been described it. to me as someone to whom everybody turns when they have a problem L- mm. Lorraine will <laughs> sort it Lorraine is always capable um, she's like a, a mammy to all your mm. troubles when you've got troubles but then you have troubles of your own who minded you and who um, helped you in that that first couple of years because we're now two years Yeah, on. I think, look, on a practical level in the beginning and I am, I, I'm out and out an absolute control freak um, and I do tend to be the one that solves people's problems um, and ignore my own to my own detriment. Um, I realised actually in that moment 
that I had to change. And it's such a peculiar thing because like you kind of think about your your personality and your flaws. And a month before it was our wedding anniversary. So Carl and myself got a, a night away and we hadn't been away for a couple of years just on our own. And we talked through these things and our own kind of foibles and our relationship and our plans for the kids and what we needed to do. And one of the things was kind of, you know, just looking at our own characters as well and, and a bit of personal development. So I knew that I needed to let go of control. So I didn't organise the funeral. I, I didn't. I, there was so little I didn't organise in that time. I just knew there were certain people who could do it and I let them do it and I let go. And I knew from that point on that I couldn't afford to control everything, that I had to start relying on other people, which isn't something I would have been naturally inclined to do. But it was the only way to survive that period. Um Opening the door, Pat, is a big thing. Just, you know, accepting help. You know, I made a promise to myself never to say no. You know, we can talk about what what that offer looks like, but never say no. So if somebody asks, you know, do you want to go out for lunch? I'll never say no to them anymore. I might have to take a a rain check and put a date in the diary, but I've learned just not to say no to people and take that help and support. Now, often in any partnership or marriage, there is a division of labour that uh, one partner will do one thing and the other will do a different task, whatever it is, whether it's family or uh, even the household accounts or even putting the bins out, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a division of labour. When you're suddenly alone, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the bins part because <laughs> it's the one thing that every week when you forget to put the bins out, you go, oh, because that, that was always Carl's thing. Um, but it was for 17 years, I was an unpaid carer. So I was at home because one of the oldest has disabilities. Um, so Carl was the kind of breadwinner. Um, but having said that, I then managed everything. I was his PA. I, I managed the taxes. I managed, you know, the bills. Um, you know, he, he didn't... You know, he wasn't interested in that. If post came in, he wasn't interested in what it was. It was just, you know, that's your that's your part of the partnership. So in that respect, things didn't change in terms of the household and everything. But the decision making for me had to change because, um, you know, generally the decisions would go in whatever way I had preempted they would be. But I always went through a process with Carl where we would talk stuff through because he always had a very different um, perspective on things and viewpoints and, and knowledge as well. And that for me has led to a bit of decision paralysis. It's getting better. But the first year I just felt I couldn't make big decisions because I didn't want to take on that parental responsibility, that sole parental responsibility. And I didn't feel some of the things were things that I could feel comfortable talking to other people that wasn't your partner. That would just, you know, it's so hard to explain because I've often thought of single parents who that's their beginning, you know, that's their job. And I suppose if you've been involved with somebody for, you know, 27 years and you've done it for that way for so long, it's very hard to shift that. And I think this year I'm probably better. But in the first year, it was extremely difficult to kind of make plans because I just didn't want to say, yeah, this is what we're doing and take responsibility for it. Maybe not going the way that you wanted it to. Where did you find solace? I mean, there are people, obviously, who who share grief and sometimes they're older people, sometimes younger people. Did you reach out or did people reach out to you? Um, some people reached out to me through kind of social media, actually, and just messages, um, you know, people who had gone through it themselves. And at that time, early on, I wasn't really prepared. I, I was actually a very private person, you know, with my own emotions. Um, 
And every couple of months, I would put a post out on social media to keep it real. So it would be my inner thoughts on paper. Um, I'm not a writer in terms of diaries or anything, but I put something out there that would be exactly what I felt. And then it would make me accountable to myself because now it was public and it was there. Um, and then I um, heard about this group on Facebook, Widows, uh, Widowed in Ireland. Um, and I know they've actually been on News Talk, some of the people who founded it. Um, and that for me has been the best place. Um, so it's it's a well, it's a group on Facebook. It, it you you can't they don't just let anybody and you you do have to go through a process of verification that you are widowed, which can be quite harsh because it does involve maybe documents documentation, but it keeps the group space. Uh, it's a safe space. And for me, that's where there's a whole community of people who just get it. It doesn't matter what you say, where you're at, what hour of the day or night it is. There's people there all the time who just know what you're going through. And for me, on a practical and emotional level, you know, aside from look, family and friends who are there for me, but that's really where I suppose I can be myself in true widowhood, if you like, and the rawness of it. What happens uh, to to your own self uh, sense of identity? You know, you your status has changed. You were married to to him for so long, and that was your status in life. And it's like someone often they say when people retire, they lose the status that they had. Their own identity is wrapped up in that status, and and they're in the wilderness after they retire. Um, when you're bereaved like you were, your status changes. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of people don't realise that. Um, a couple of weeks later, when sort of more sort of government kind of paperwork came through um, and, you know, dealing with kind of widow's pension and thing. And that's when I realised that I could no longer tick married on any boxes, on any forms. There was now a new box called widow. And legally, you were no longer married. And even now, you know, if you're filling in a form or, you know, an online payment or whatever, and there's the box for Ms., Ms., Mrs. I don't know what to tick anymore. I feel like I'm a missus, but <laughs> I don't know. Am I actually a missus or am I a miss? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that trying to sort of have that identity change of a widow, it's not a word I use a lot, to be honest. And, you know, if I'm putting something on social media, I'm very careful not to use the word because unfortunately there are people there who prey on widows and you can be sure 10 seconds later you get a message from a, a lieutenant in the American army who's a surgeon and whatever who saw your profile. And that unfortunately is endemic. Um, so the word widow, I'm not sure I, I, I don't use it a lot and I don't identify with, as being a widow, but I am a widow and I can't get away from that. At any point in the past two years, did you feel lost? Oh, many times, many times. But I suppose it's something that is only ever kind of felt when I'm sitting in my car on my own. It's not something. And, and look, my children kind of know this because we've had more mature conversations lately coming up to the second anniversary, which is on Monday, you know, about adult responsibilities and the reality. Um, but there's many times where you feel lost. You feel lost in, you know, your ability to parent without your co-pilot. Um, you feel lost um, in making those kind of financial plans, even though there's people there who could help you. But I think there's just this sort of psychological process that you have to go through that everybody goes through and it's different for people, but you still have to go through it. And it's not the five stages of grief that you see on paper. It's not cycles. I think it's different for everybody. But going back to kind of, you know, the Widowed in Ireland group, that's the place where I've kind of found my guidance because 
everybody there knows what you're going through. And while you might have people who've had, you know, tragedies, accidents, or maybe the, their partner died of cancer, you know, an enduring illness or like Carl, where it was a very sudden, people actually kind of get it. And that's where I find, you know, even if it's not me asking a question, I can see others asking the question and get the answers for myself yeah. there and then the confidence to go with that. But Again, your your kind of identity. Look, at the end of the day, I'm I'm Lorraine Dempsey. That's that's who I am. I'm a mother of four girls. I I do like to remind people about Carl. I do kind of put up posts and videos, and I do want to honour the man that we've lost. Um, and you know, the one thing that does help me actually is the the way people do want to constantly commemorate him. You know, our local GA club, um, tidy towns, and there's so many things he was involved in his own right that they always think about him. And you know, the people who've messaged me over the weekend and on Monday who just, you know, just wanted to drop a word, an ex-colleague or current colleagues, you know, they're still all around and every now and then it's just, hey, just thinking about you checking in or maybe somebody went to the, his grave and just wanted to let me know that they were thinking about him. And that's really important because he was there for 47 years. You know, he's left an imprint um, and I don't want to forget what that looks like and I don't want my kids to forget about it. So there is a whole community of people, I suppose, who are trying to keep that memory alive and he did so many things with his life. You know, he really lived it to the max. Um, and, you know, thankfully, we've got digital photographs and videos and a huge catalogue of his voice there for the kids to kind of hear back. But, um, you know, it's trying to keep that memory alive in your head and the sense of him always being with us. And that to me is it's it's just so important not to let go of that. Lorraine Dempsey, thank you very much. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.